Heavenly Father, we thank you for the good news of the gospel. We pray now that you would help me to preach your gospel clearly and faithfully. And though it may be familiar with us, Lord, help us to really listen to what your gospel is about, that we would not forget it, but it would be the center of our lives and our churches and our ministries. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, some things are so important in life that they must be remembered. Right? Your wedding anniversary, your children's birthdays, where you put your passport and to take your keys with you when you lock well, when you go out of the house. The problem is as human beings, we are very prone to forget things, especially as you get older. Even the most important things in life can be forgotten. And to forget those important things can have drastic consequences, which you will know if you have forgotten your wedding anniversary or the date of your exams, that happened to me once, or to bring your passport to the airport, that also happened to me. And so for the most important things in life, we set reminders. We write it in big letters in our diary, or I guess if it's Ryan's house, you'll write it in your kitchen wall. You'll put it in your phone. Uh, or wherever you, you can, so that you won't forget it. And friends, there is something very important that we need to be reminded of this morning. It's something that we probably know, but it's something so important that we need to be reminded of it again. Because the consequences of forgetting this are, well, disastrous. They are great and eternal. What is this thing that we need to be reminded of? It's the gospel. The gospel. Now, I think it's fair to say that uh, the word gospel is very popular around Christian circles. You'll be rare, I guess, that you'll attend a church service and not hear that word somewhere in the service. We all say that we believe the gospel. We may even claim to be gospel-centered Christians. That's the latest fashion after all. And yet, perhaps, we haven't really grasped what it means to believe the gospel or to be gospel-centered in preparing this, I read an article by Don Carson that leads, lists some ways that the gospel is often misunderstood, uh, believing that the gospel is only a message for non-Christians, or believing the gospel is at its heart about loving God and loving our neighbor, or believing that the gospel is about following the ethical teachings of Jesus that we find in the gospels, uh, or a tendency to assume that we all know the gospel already and just focus on other things instead, things like marriage or mission or prayer or social action or, or other things that maybe seem to be more advanced in the Christian life. And so we're, either we misunderstand the message of the gospel or we neglect it and put it to the side. In either way, we forget it. We need to be reminded of the gospel again and again. And so as we come to 1 Corinthians 15, we actually are coming to a climax in this grand letter. We've seen that throughout 1 Corinthians, Paul has been addressing a lot of different issues in this church. He's heard some from reports from his co-workers, others they've written to him about in a letter. He's discussed issues like divisions in the church, sexual immorality, lawsuits among believers, issues of marriage and singleness and divorce and remarriage. He's talked about 
food sacrifice to idols and men and women's roles in church and the Lord's Supper and quite a bit about spiritual gifts. But despite the very practical nature of this letter as he deals with all those issues one by one, we must not miss the main message, the foundation of this letter. The foundation, the heart of all of Paul's answers to all of those issues has been shaped around one thing, and that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because Paul has been very clear that all of those issues that he's been dealing with, ultimately they result from a failure to remember and apply and live out the gospel of Jesus. And that's why he began this letter as he did in chapter 1 with an extended discussion of the death of Christ. That's why at the end of the letter now he's going to spend a long time talking about the resurrection of Christ. He begins with the gospel, he ends with the gospel, and all the way through he's applied the gospel to each one of those different issues. The gospel is the heart and the foundation of this letter of the Christian life of everything. And so to be a faithful church, we must remember the gospel. We must be gospel-centered. We must be evangelicals. Uh, that word, the word evangel from it is the word gospel. Evangelicals are gospel people, gospel-centered people. And so it's the gospel that Paul returns to in this wonderful passage. Verse 1, now I would remind you, brothers, brothers and sisters, of the gospel Paul wants to remind us of the gospel. Now, of course, the Corinthians knew the gospel. Paul himself preached it to them when he planted the church. If we are truly Christians, we too know the gospel. We, we've heard it again and again. But they and we need to be reminded again and again and again. The gospel is not just a message for unbelievers. It's not just a message that you preach to bring people to faith in Christ and then you move on to more advanced things. Christians need to be reminded of the gospel. Why is that? Well, firstly, there's the danger to abandon the gospel or to, to change the gospel to something else, to stop trusting in God's grace in the death of Jesus and perhaps to start trusting in a counterfeit gospel like my own good works or, or a prosperity gospel. And as you read the New Testament, you, you see that happen time and time again. Various false teachings emerged, even in the, ch the churches that Paul planted, even in the Corinthian church that happened. We need to be reminded of the true gospel so that we can hold fast to it, not be led astray by false teachings. And secondly, we, we need to remember the gospel because we need to apply the gospel to every part of life, as we've seen in this letter. The gospel must shape everything, our, our attitude to ministry and preaching, leadership, our, our attitude to marriage and singleness, our attitude to church and worship, our attitude to our spiritual gifts. All these things must be shaped by the gospel. We must consider again and again how the gospel shapes our thinking and our behavior in these and in every part of the Christian life. The gospel is for Christians. We need to be reminded of the gospel again and again. Well, what is the gospel? What is the gospel? We're going to consider this this morning under three main points. The first one, the gospel is a message that will save you if you hold fast to it. The gospel is a message that will save you if you hold fast to it. 
Again, verse 1. I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand. Uh, Notice the gospel is a message here that must be preached, that must be announced. The word gospel means good news. And you can't share the gospel with people without speaking it. Uh, You wouldn't uh, say if you gave birth to, uh, to your first child. I don't think you would announce the good news of the birth of your first child simply through your actions, you know, maybe be by trying to be more loving towards babies from now on, or maybe wearing more t-shirts that have babies on them or something like that, or a baby necklace or something like that. That's not how you would announce the birth of your first child, right? You, you'll tell people about it. Probably you'll take some really cute photos and then you'll get on WhatsApp and spam all the groups that you know about, plaster it all over social media. Paul preached the gospel. It's a message that must be announced, and it's a message that they received. And it's a message that as it is spoken and as it is received, saves people. See that in verse 2. By which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So the gospel tells us that we need to be rescued. Our natural state is, is not being right with God. Our natural state is being an enemy of God. We're sinners. We've rejected God's rule over our lives. We need rescue. We need to be saved. And here we're told that only the gospel can rescue us. Only the gospel can save us. Other religions can't save us. Our own good works cannot save us. Only the gospel can rescue us. But we're also told here the gospel will only save us if we hold fast to it in faith. It continues, by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So the gospel must be announced and it must be believed and we must hold fast and continue believing in it if we are to be saved. If we change the gospel, if we move on from the gospel, if we stop believing in the gospel, then we won't be saved anymore. And Paul says it doesn't matter what else you did for Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter that you were baptized at some point or that you attended lots of church services or you were involved in lots of ministries or you were a leader in the church or you gave lots of money to the church or or whatever you, you did for the church. It's all in vain. It's all useless if you don't continue to believe and hold fast to the gospel message. If we do not hold fast to the gospel... All those other things, good as they are, will be pointless and useless. We won't be rescued. We won't be saved. Only persevering faith in the gospel can save us. It's one way the phrase once saved, always saved is often misunderstood and and, and therefore rejected. It's a true phrase. It, It summarizes accurately the teaching of the Bible about the sovereignty of God in salvation. Those whom God elects, he calls through the gospel. They they put their faith in Jesus. They're justified by faith. And then God, by his spirit, perseveres us in faith until we reach glory and we're with him. It's a true phrase. But it's often misunderstood and therefore rejected because once saved, always saved, It sounds a bit like you can say a a sinner's prayer 20 years ago and then forget about Jesus, continue to live your own godless life and and think, oh, I'm okay, I'm going to be rescued. No, that's not the case. Here we're told in verse 2, 
that true saving faith not only must begin by trusting in the gospel, you must continue, you must hold fast in faith, persevering faith to the end. The gospel is a message that will save you if you hold fast to it. Now, Paul is saying all this because the Corinthian church are indeed being tempted to displace the gospel from its central part in the church life. And that is clear by all the worldly issues that have penetrated the church. They've forgotten the gospel. They were certainly denying the death of Christ with their proud emphasis on eloquence and power and, and, and success in ministry. We'll see next, next week as we continue on that they were certainly denying the resurrection of the dead as well. They needed to be reminded of the gospel because to forget it would be catastrophic. It would destroy the church. It would rob it of its salvation. And so today for us, we too are often pressured to change the gospel because it's not popular, to speak less about sin and judgment and the wrath of God, to speak much more about God's love and blessing and prosperity. We're tempted to embrace worldly values like the world's attitudes to marriage and sexuality, discard the teaching of the Bible. But here we're told to change the gospel, to move on from the gospel, it will have catastrophic results. It will destroy the church. You'll lose your salvation. The gospel is a message that will save you if you hold fast to it. Well, secondly, we see that the gospel is a message of first importance concerning a pro promised saviour king. The gospel is a message of first importance concerning a promised saviour king. And in verses 3 to 6, Paul now tells us what the gospel is. He describes it as a message of first importance. Verse 3, I delivered you as of first importance what I also received. Paul is saying that the gospel is the central message of the Bible. He's saying if you're going to summarize the Bible in the whole of this book in one word, I guess you would use the word, what do you think? I'd say Jesus, right? If you're going to use two words, how would you summarize it? The gospel. The gospel. Right? Who Jesus is, what Jesus has done. That's what this book is all about. The gospel is the central message of the Bible. And therefore, it ought to be the central message of the church. It ought to shape all of our life, all of our ministries. It ought to permeate every sermon, every Bible study, every prayer meeting. It should motivate every good work that we do. It is the foundation of our hope and assurance for the future. The gospel is of first importance. And so it must be prioritized. And it must be remembered. And it must be given central place. We should never get tired of hearing the gospel. And so he tells us what this gospel is. And firstly, we see that the gospel is Christocentric. That is, the gospel is Christ-centered. Verse 13, uh, sorry, verse 3. I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins. The gospel is all about Christ. John Stott writes this, the gospel is not preached if Christ is not preached. The gospel is not preached if Christ is not preached. Because the gospel is all about Christ. If we do not preach who Christ is and what Christ has done, we haven't preached the gospel. 
we do not tell people that he died as our saviour and rose as our king, we have not preached the gospel. But what do we mean here by Christ? Uh, Christ here is not Jesus' surname, right? It's not first name Jesus, last name Christ. Often people think that. No, Christ is a title. It's like Dato or it's like Putra. Christ is, a is the Greek translation of the word Messiah. And in English, we would translate that as the anointed one, the anointed one. Now, lots of people in the Old Testament were anointed. Prophets were anointed, priests were anointed, kings were anointed. But this term, Messiah or Christ, it referred supremely to God's promised king, God's absolute universal ruler who would save his people and be raised again to rule the kingdom of God. Now, this week has seen the tragic passing of one of the great women of our age, Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II, someone who has been dubbed the last Christian monarch because she had a fervent Christian faith and boldly witnessed to it in public life. Now, at her coronation so many years ago in 1957, was anyone around for that? I don't know. She was anointed with oil. That was part of, of the ceremony in the coronation. They would get oil and they would anoint her head. Presumably the same will happen to King Charles III upon his accession to the throne. The anointed one was God's promised king. And we read of him in passages like Psalm 2. Psalm 2 verse 1. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. And God, God's anointed here is talking about his promised king. God says a few verses later, verse 6, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. The world rages against him, but he is on the throne of heaven. He rules. Verse 7, the king speaks. I will declare, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. See, the anointed one was God's absolute universal king who ruled over the nations in all power and authority. The gospel is all about Christ, the king. And that's a reminder that we need. Because very often we think that Jesus is our saviour, he's our friend, he's our brother, he's the one who blesses us, he's near to us. And of course, all those things are wonderfully true and we should keep saying them. But the same Jesus who's our saviour, friend, etc., is also our king. God's absolute, universal, eternal king who demands our obedience and our submission. The psalm ends in Psalm 2 by calling the nations to stop their rebellion and submit to the Son. So the gospel is, is Christocentric. It's all centered on Christ, the king. Next we see in this passage that the gospel is historical. It's historical. Verse 3. I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, that he appeared to Kephas and then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, 
though some have fallen asleep. The gospel is historical. And what we mean by that is that the gospel is about a real person in a real place that experienced real events. He died. He was buried. His burial showed he was really dead. Three days later, he was raised. He appeared to lots of people. The appearances showed that he was really alive. There are some people in what we call liberal Christian circles who outright deny, or perhaps just downplay, the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. They make up all manner of other explanations for the empty tomb. They say, oh, Jesus' body was stolen, or they say he fainted and then he woke up in the cool of the tomb, and and a bunch more as well. They say it, it was just a spiritual resurrection. It was a resurrection in the hearts of the disciples. Some years back, uh, the Easter message at St. George's Church, Perth, in Australia, the dean of that cathedral, he got up and he said, in his Easter message, we need to do away with notions of a physical resurrection. He said, it's just simply not necessary to believe that Jesus' body rose again. He says Christ's resurrection was spiritual. It was an experience that happened in the the hearts of the disciples, not in the tomb he was buried in. He says, well, you can believe it was physical if that helps you, but it's really not necessary at all. False teacher. Because as we'll see next week, it matters profoundly that we affirm that Jesus really died and he was really bodily raised from the dead take out the historical foundation of the gospel and the entire gospel collapses. There's there's, there's no more forgiveness of sins. There's there's no more hope of eternal life. Why should we hope there's eternal life if Jesus is still dead in the grave? Paul is insistent here that the gospel he preached was based on real historical events. He was really dead. He was really buried in the tomb to prove it. They saw where he was laid... And three days later, he was raised. The tomb was empty. The angel said that he was risen. And he proved he was alive by appearing to his disciples on many different occasions. Paul summarizes many of those here in this passage. He says in verse 5, he appeared to Cephas. That's another name for Peter. And then to the twelve. He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. Most of him are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Paul wants to give a certainty about the resurrection of Jesus here. He's saying, look, most of these guys were still alive. You, you could go and talk to them. Don't just, Paul's saying, don't just take my word for it. Go and find one of the witnesses. They'll tell you themselves. There was Peter. There was the 12 apostles, the primary witnesses to the resurrection. But then there was also more than 500 people that we're told Jesus appeared to at the same time. And Paul reminds us that they are still alive, most of them. Sometimes people say, look, the resurrection appearances, they were just hallucinations. You know, it's just wishful thinking. Uh, you know, the, the disciples were so distraught that they needed to make up something to comfort themselves. But medically speaking, 500 people cannot have the same hallucination at the same time. It's just not how it works. Jesus' resurrection wasn't a hallucination. It was a historical 
fact. And there's been many books written about this. You could check out Who Moved the Stone, Frank Morrison, The Case for Christ and others. They will give you great summaries of the historical evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. Paul adds a few more resurrection appearances in verse 7. He says, then he appeared to James and to all the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. James, Jesus' half-brother, the leader of the Jerusalem church. Paul, to whom the Lord Jesus appeared personally on the Damascus road. See, the resurrection of Jesus, he wasn't hearsay for Paul. He had personally encountered the resurrected Jesus. The gospel is Christocentric. The gospel is historical. Thirdly, we see that the gospel is theological. The gospel is theological. That is, it's not just about the historical events, but it's about the meaning of those events. Verse 3 tells us that Christ died for our sins. It's a very compact statement of profound theological truth. Firstly, what is sin? Sin can be understood by how it is spelt. Little s, little n, and a big I in the middle. Because sin is all about living for I, living for me. Sin is when we rebel against God's rule. When we say to God, I don't want you to be in charge of my life. I'm going to live my life my way. We might express it by following another religion. We may express it by ignoring God's existence or denying his existence. We may express it in active disobedience against his rules. But it's all the same. Sin is saying no to God. Sin is not simply bad behavior. Lying, stealing, being greedy, proud. We can call those sins. But those are the symptoms of a deeper disease, a disease in the heart. Sin, if you like, is treason against God. Sin is pushing God off the throne to sit there ourselves, to live my life, my way, without him in charge. We're told that Christ died for our sins. Christ died for our sins. What is the punishment for sin? Sin is a crime that carries the punishment of death. The punishment is death, and after death, judgment afterwards, Hebrews 9.27. Christ died for our sins, means he took the punishment that our sins deserve. And he died for us. In other words, it was a swap. It was a substitution. In football, when there's a substitution, one player will go off, and another player will come on and play in their place. You see, we are sinners. We deserve to die. But Christ died for our sins. He took our place. He, on the cross, he took the punishment that we deserve. Although we were guilty, we had all these sins cutting us off from God, he was sinless on the cross. He took our punishment. He took our sins. He died in our place so that we could be forgiven, right with God, have eternal life. It's vital for us to understand that at the heart of the gospel, is what we call penal substitutionary atonement. It's a long word. Penal means penalty. Jesus took the penalty for our sins. He died for us. Substitutionary. He died in our place. He swapped places with us. A substitute. Atonement. He died so that our sins could be forgiven, so that we could be right with God. Again, 
Very often the gospel is reduced to God loves you or God wants to bless you or God has a purpose for your life. True things, if you understand them rightly. But they're insufficient. The gospel, the heart of the gospel, is penal substitutionary atonement. Christ died for our sins. So remove sin, remove the punishment and the anger of God from the gospel, and it's all gone. It all falls apart. There's no more good news. There's no more good purpose for your life. The gospel is Christocentric. The gospel is historical. The gospel is theological. Fourthly, we see here, the gospel is biblical. Uh, That is, the gospel is the central message of the Bible, all of the Bible. Verse 3 says, Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. Verse 4 says, he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Now, by the scriptures here, Paul is talking about the Old Testament. He's saying that the whole of the Old Testament looks forward to the life, death, resurrection, ascension, of Jesus Christ, so that it's impossible to understand the gospel fully without understanding the Old Testament. But Jesus himself taught this. John 5.39 said to the Pharisees, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness to me. Or Luke 24, on the road to Emmaus, He said to them, O foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Jesus is saying, Paul is saying here what Jesus is saying. The whole of the Bible is about him. It's about the gospel. Now, Paul doesn't say what scriptures in particular he has in mind here, probably because all of the scriptures speak about the gospel. But here are some very clear examples. Exodus 12 spoke of a Passover lamb sacrificed in the place of his people. They painted the blood on the doorpost so that the angel of death would pass over. Leviticus 16 spoke of a day of atonement when the high priest would would go into the the most holy place, the blood of the bulls and the goats would be sacrificed to atone for sins. 2 Samuel 7 spoke of a king who would be called God's son, who would rule over God's kingdom forever. Psalm 16 spoke of how God's holy one, his king, would not see corruption in the grave, but would be raised again to life. We We could cite many, many more passages like this. In fact, in every chapter of every book in the Old Testament, we could show how it is fulfilled in Christ and the gospel. Let's for a moment just look at one key text together so we can see this. Isaiah 53. It's a passage about the suffering servant who dies to satisfy the wrath of a holy God and save his people. Isaiah 53 verse 4 says this, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement or the punishment that brought us peace. With his wounds we are healed, or we like sheep have gone astray, we've turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The servant is punished by God in place of his people. 
He bears their sins in their place so they can be forgiven and free. Do you see, this is penal substitutionary atonement. Penal, he bears God's wrath on sin. Substitutionary, he dies in their place. Atonement, his death brings peace with God. By his wounds you are healed. We could just say Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. Now, not only does this suffering servant here die to save his people, but he's raised to life as well. Just a few verses later, same chapter, verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied by his knowledge Shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous? He shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. He shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he, was poor, he poured out his soul to death. He was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. This is, look, for this suffering servant, death is not the end. He's, he's vindicated. He prolongs his days. He's raised from the dead. Christ was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. So the gospel is Christocentric, Christ-centered. The gospel is historical, real events. The gospel is theological, the meaning of those events. The gospel is biblical. All of the Bible is about this. And finally, we see the gospel is apostolic. The gospel is apostolic. Paul says that this was the gospel that, that I, Paul, that they, the other apostles, preached. Look at verse 11. It says, whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. You see that? I, they, we, you. The gospel is apostolic. It's what Paul preached it's what the other apostles preached. It's what the early church believed. It's what the Corinthians believed. The only true gospel is the apostolic gospel, expounded by the apostles in passages like this one. The good news that Christ died as our Savior and was raised boldly as our King, that's the only gospel. See, we're not free to make up our own version of the gospel, which we think will appeal better to the world around us. We must take care, like Paul did, to pass on the gospel that we have received, the apostolic gospel. Paul preached it. Verse 1, they were to stand in the gospel. Verse 2, they were to hold fast to the gospel. So the gospel is Christocentric, it's historical, it's theological, it's biblical, it is apostolic. The gospel is a message that will save you if you hold fast to it. It's a message of first importance about a promised saviour, king. And in this final part of the passage, we see that this gospel is a message that will transform your life by God's grace. It's a message that will transform your life by God's grace. And that is, was supremely evident in the life of the Apostle Paul. It says in verse 8, Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I'm the least of the apostles, unworthy even to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. The apostle Paul had a profound sense of his own unworthiness to be called an apostle of Jesus. He was untimely born. I guess that 
means he thinks he's an illegitimate child in some way. Because before his conversion, he was a ferocious opponent of Jesus and his people. We have Paul's own testimony in Acts chapter 26. He says this, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues. I tried to make them blaspheme, and in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. But the gospel was powerful enough to save and transform even the Apostle Paul. It's wonderful news, isn't it? No one is too evil to be saved. No one is too far gone. There, no one is beyond hope or beyond rescue. The gospel can save and transform anyone. Paul continues in verse 10, By the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace towards me was not in vain. Whatever we were before we became Christians, whatever we did before we became Christians, we're told it lies in the gracious purposes of God. God cannot be thwarted by our past life, no matter how bad it was. God can use it to proclaim the glories of his grace. And God's grace in Paul's life, we're told, was not fruitless. It brought salvation and it brought transformation. Having met the risen Jesus, Paul did a 180 turn and now he preached and served and sacrificed himself for this Jesus whom he had once persecuted. And so, brothers and sisters, you may have things in your past that you deeply regret, that you wish you could blot out, you may be ashamed of who you were or even who you are right now. But God's grace in the gospel is sufficient to save and transform your life. There is still hope. You can be rescued. You can be changed as you believe in this gospel of Christ. The gospel of grace brings powerful transformation. In fact, we're told that the extent of grace that Paul received motivated him to work all the harder for Jesus. Verse 10, he says, On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, the other apostles, though it was not I, but the grace of God that was in me. In response to such staggering grace that he had received that he didn't deserve, Paul worked harder than anyone else to see that the gospel advanced. Harder than any of the apostles. He went from town to town to town to town, preaching and preaching, day and night, persecuted, and run out of town again and again because he knew the grace of God that he had received. He doesn't boast about it or take credit for it. He knows it's God's grace that enabled him to work hard like this. But God's grace did produce hard work, sacrificial service, in response to what God had done. I take it the same ought to be true of us. As we reflect on our life as sinners and the amazing grace that we have received, we recognize that our life belongs to God. We should use whatever days he's given us to serve him, to work hard, that others may hear 
this good news to. It doesn't mean we can't take holidays or take rest, but grace motivates ministry. So Paul concludes, verse 11, whether then it was I or they, so we preach, so you believe. This is the gospel that we need to be reminded of and strive to proclaim. So as we conclude, there are some things in life that are so important we need to be reminded of them. The Corinthians needed to be reminded of the gospel. So do we. So brothers and sisters, remember the gospel. Do not forget the gospel. Do not be moved from the gospel. Work hard to keep your life in your church, central in your preaching, central in your evangelism, central in your prayer meetings, central in your vision for the church, central in the public gatherings, central in your marriage, in your family, in your schooling, in your workplace, central in every conceivable context. Keep the gospel central. We must say it loudly. We must say it again and again. Keep the gospel central because there's always a danger of losing it. The gospel is only ever one generation away from being lost. They say that the first generation preaches the gospel. The second generation believes the gospel. The third generation assumes the gospel. The fourth generation denies the gospel. Whose fault is it that the gospel was lost by the fourth generation? Of course, it was the second generation's fault. Who believed it but didn't preach it? Who didn't keep it central? Who, who didn't emphasize its centrality, you see? We need to emphasize afresh in every generation the centrality and importance of the gospel. Don't assume that, that it's been heard and understood because you've heard it yourself. We must keep it central. The gospel is a message that will save you if you hold fast to it. The gospel is a message of first importance concerning a promised saviour king. The gospel is a message that will transform your life by the grace of God. Paul needed to remind them, he needed to remind us of this gospel that we may work it out in every domain of life. Forgetting something important can have catastrophic consequences. But there's nothing more disastrous than forgetting the gospel. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we want to thank you that in your grace you have reminded us again of this glorious gospel. Lord, we confess that we are sinners. We have sinned and we sin every day, failing to submit to your good rule over our lives. But thank you, Lord, that you sent your Son, that he died on that cross, he took that punishment we deserve in our place so that we could be forgiven. And thank you that he is not dead in the tomb, but he is risen. He has ascended to your side, that he has established the kingdom so that now we have the sure and certain hope of eternal life. 
And so, Lord, as we remember the gospel and we remember the grace that you have shown us, please transform our lives. Help us to hold fast to this. Help the gospel to shape every part of our life and ministry. And give us courage like Paul to work hard in seeing the gospel advance. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.